Well, last week we looked at that first part of what Gerald just read. Um, this is then an ongoing, uh, the, a continuation of the same account where the apostles were arrested, they were freed by an angel and then the high priest and all those who were with him, remember, ended up requesting that the, <clears throat> that the apostles rejoin them and, and subject themselves to examination in the court. And then while they were in there, we saw when it, you know, the, the application that we could draw from that, that we can know when we for sure must stand up for Jesus. And it's any time that we are being told that we must, uh, that, that would interfere with our obedience to Christ. If we're told not to do something that God commands or to do something that God forbids. And so this is a continuation of that same episode that's taken place. They're still right there at the beginning of it anyway in the courtroom. And once again, we see that it's the apostles that serve as an example for us. And I would say that the example is a little bit obvious. And for that reason, what I would like to do is actually go about this maybe in a, a, a different way than we normally would go. I'm going to start from the end and move up a little bit. Or to put it differently, I want to grab some of that low-hanging fruit and then maybe start to work our way up the tree just a little bit. So in light of that, our hymn of proclamation after the sermon is over that we're going to sing is when trials come and I'm looking at verse 4, the fourth stanza, where it talks about when I am weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross, so in its shadow I shall run till he completes the work begun, till he completes the work begun. And so we see contrasted in that verse that we're going to sing in particular, you know, shame and dishonor. We're actually seeing um, as the, uh, the writer of this him, it looks like it's a Getty uh, hymn, that, uh, that they're comparing the weary cost against the triumphant cross. And those things take place simultaneously. There's the weary cross and the triumphant cross. And in the same way, we see something that is taking place with the apostles where there is both some form of dishonor that's taking place to them personally, some form of shame that's being cast on them, and yet simultaneously there is great honor and um, they in fact say that they consider it uh, that they counted that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name in fact um, that you know as far as starting from the end that's that and uh, those last two verses of the section that we're looking at is verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, that the Christ is Jesus. So it makes perfect sense in light of that kind of climax that seems very clear in this episode as it's finishing out the chapter that um, the, that song that we're going to sing is when trials come and that the sermon is entitled worthy to suffer I mean my goodness they the apostles themselves were beaten for their troubles now 
I think it is fairly obvious that the climax is right there and that sense of being worthy to suffer. And we can see the pattern, that example that the apostles gave to us. They were proclaiming the gospel of Christ when they were arrested. They were miraculously freed. They went back to proclaiming the gospel of Christ. They were asked to come back into court. And while still within court, they proclaimed the gospel of Christ. They were then beaten and released. And what did they do? They went right back to both publicly and privately proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't think it takes a, um, a lot of study in the Greek language or pouring over volumes of commentaries to be able to get to verses 41 and 42 in this account that's taking place here where we can see, okay, the low-hanging fruit is that we should be worthy to suffer dishonor or to suffer shame for the name. However, I would like to climb up the tree just a, a, a little bit more because I think what can happen, I'm not saying that this is absolute for you, but it's entirely possible, is that maybe you can look at that scenario and look at what's happening to the apostles at that particular time in history and go, I understand what's taking place and I certainly can pick out the main lesson that's going on there, but how does that connect to my life personally? That happened nearly 2,000 years ago in a geography that is completely different from where we live, in a culture that we don't live in. They had a completely different setting than we have. And in fact, you could add to that that we know from scripture that it's the apostles along with the prophets that are the foundation of the church itself. So you can kind of look at this scenario and go, okay, you're talking about apostles after Jesus has been glorified. So the apostles are on top of their game at this point. The church is being created. This is the early times of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, not only that, the apostles are performing signs and wonders and they're going around and healing folks and they're clearly consistently proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might be a little difficult to identify with that situation. And maybe even more so if you think about our current culture. Now, I don't think it's, I can make that same comment about anywhere in the world, but as it relates to our American culture, you know, metropolitan Phoenix right now, as things stand right now, it is highly unlikely that for your faith, you're gonna find yourself in a courtroom, right? If you, if you legitimately profess and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, as things stand today, most likely you're not gonna be charged with a criminal offense and dragged into court. Even less so, are you, as the gov- are you gonna receive a government-sponsored respo- uh, government beating for your faith, right? I believe in Jesus Christ, okay, the judge, let's, let's beat him. So those things are not really um, applicable directly, one for one, for us today. But what I want to do is, as we move from the end and just kind of move up just a little bit, I want to talk about a different character that is in this particular account, and it is that character Gamaliel. I want to point something out, a couple of things out about this guy Gamaliel. You'll see him first introduced in verse 34 of chapter 5. And I will put at the outset, I acknowledge that we cannot know for certain that Gamaliel was one of God's children that, um, 
that, that he was saved. We can't know with absolute certainty. In, in fact, you could even make an argument that, well, he's actually a member of the very council that earlier in the, the same account in the courtroom that the apostles, Peter and the apostles, were actually saying, you killed Jesus. He put it squarely on them, the council. So in that sense, you could say, well, they're pinning the death of Christ on this council, that they have blood on their hands, and Gamaliel is, in fact, a member of this council. So does he not then automatically have this same blood on his hands? And I would say I think there's reason to have a, a little more optimistic or favorable view of Gamaliel, and I want to uh, point out a couple of those, and then I'll tell you why I think that's actually helpful for us. And one of the reasons that uh, I think that we, can, uh, that, that we can hope anyway, or we have grounds for hope that, um, that Gamaliel maybe was actually one of God's children, first of all, not every single person that was a member of that council, the council that's known historically as the Sanhedrin, not every member to a man was evil. So specifically in Mark uh, 15, 43, we have Joseph of Arimathea. Remember Joseph's the one that actually went, showed courage and went and requested the body of Jesus after he was crucified. And this is what it says in Mark, 15, uh, I'll read 42 and 43. And when evening had come, <coughs> since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So right there, we clearly have somebody who is seeking the kingdom and took courage and went to, um, uh, went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. In addition to that, you think about the language that's being used to describe Joseph of Arimathea. It says that he is a respected member of the council. And when we look back at our passage in Acts 5, it says in verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people. And if you don't realize this, the council, the Sanhedrin, kind of had a reputation for abusing the people. They would, you know, remember Jesus said, you'll, you'll swallow a camel and strain out a gnat. You force them to tie, you tithe on mint and cumin and forget the greater things. And so that was their... Um, how they operated, and yet we see here with Gamaliel that he actually was held in honor, just as um, Joseph of Arimathea was. He, he was a teacher of the law held in honor by all of the people. I would add one more fact that I think um, potentially has a, a reason to add a little bit of credibility to Gamaliel's standing, and that is that Paul, later, when he is talking about his own resume, to try to lend credibility to himself is telling the Jews that he actually sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, again, that doesn't automatically, one, you know, 100% confirm um, because his audience were Jews and he was trying to communicate that. But I think that maybe we can think positively because Paul is 
associating himself with this specific man, a man that is held in honor by all the people. And the reason that I wanted to bring out or to highlight Gamaliel for just a minute is because Gamaliel was not an apostle. And yet, he found himself through a series of events in his life at this particular time in this specific council standing before these apostles and he had a part to play. Verse 33, if you think about the context here, verse 33, so after the apostles had taken their stand against the council, verse 33, this is how the council responds, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The council as a whole were furious. They're infuriated and to the point of wanting to kill the apostles. And yet you see Gamaliel, similar to how it's being described with Joseph of Arimathea, how Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went before um, Pilate to request the body of Jesus. In a sense, what we see now is Gamaliel putting his reputation on the line in front of a group in which he has standing and trying to hold them back a little bit. He's standing up and saying, hold on a second before you go about doing this. He was willing to expose himself. He put himself, he made himself vulnerable for the name or or for for the sake of the apostles and if he is one of Christ, for the name of Christ as well. In fact, he stood up and he gave a very reasoned argument, and I would even say not only was it a reasoned argument, it was a brilliant argument because what he did was he appealed to their uh, sense of selfishness, of self-preservation, right? Hey, you guys know if you do this thing, you could find yourself in opposition to God. And I don't think he was saying that in a way to say, hey, don't you want to honor God? I'm guessing that he was a smart enough guy and God gave him the words to speak so that it would ultimately protect the lives of the apostles by appealing to their vanity and to say, hey, think about these examples and how these things played out. And so he courageously stood up and gives a well-reasoned argument for why they should not kill the apostles. And what happened in verse 39? They took his advice. And they went on to beat the apostles and to release them. It's reminiscent of Esther also. You know, in, in the book of Esther, she was not an apostle. Or if you want to look you know, more in the context of her time in the Old Testament. Esther was not a prophet. She was not a prophetess. Esther happened through a series of events to find herself in a very particular situation where she, not really of any of her own choosing, found herself in the court of this particular king. Right? And then through these series of events, 
there became an opportunity where her uncle is saying, hey, you have got to go to the king and make an appeal to protect his people, to stand and to make yourself vulnerable and to put yourself at risk for the protection of God's people. And, and she was scared, right? There was a lot at play here. There was a lot at risk. And she expressed that she was fearful because if she goes to the king without being invited, he could have her killed. That was within the purview of his authority is to have her killed for trying to contact him. But then her uncle told her, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is what I'm saying, you know, as we're making our way up the tree here. With, we've got the low-hanging fruit of the example of the apostles who are faithfully and consistently proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they endure persecution, we can look at that and say, wow, they directly, they directly opposed these forces of evil and then directly received the punishment for doing that. They were arrested then they were beaten. However, when we look at other characters in the Bible, we can say, well, within the same framework that Gamaliel, or certainly Esther, that there are certain circumstances under God's sovereignty and in his providence, the way things work out, that individual people find themselves, even though they're not an apostle, even though they're not a prophet, find themselves in a very specific situation in which they have the opportunity Maybe not to immediately um, um, expose themselves like, you know, the apostles were pretty much directly, if I say this, I can know a beating's coming. Like, I mean, it's just, they know that's going to be the outcome. In the case of Gamaliel, he probably had no reason to think he was going to receive a beating, but he, his reputation was at risk within that culture. Esther, her life was potentially in peril by following through on what it is that her uncle was saying, but he put a very, very fine point on that when he says, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And these things happen within our own lives. You have your own particular set of circumstances that is unlike anyone else. Even unlike the person sitting next to you that might be your spouse or your child or your parent, you have your own particular set of circumstances and that within God's providence, he has you in those particular circumstances and you will have opportunities not necessarily to be as close to the apostolic example of, hey, if I say this, I can pretty much expect a, a licking. You know, I'm going to take a beating for this or I'm going to be arrested. That's probably not going to happen. But what is absolutely a reality in our culture is that if you are faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people, or you open yourself up, you are making yourself vulnerable for shame. That's a guaranteed. That is a principle that has not changed from the time of the Sanhedrin and the apostles standing before them to this very day. You are opening yourself up to, making yourself vulnerable to, receiving dishonor, receiving shame for the name. Now I want to climb even a little bit higher up the tree and see if I can 
maybe connect this even closer to you. So we have the apostles that we see regularly. The one thing they just keep doing is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in a public setting and in a private setting. It is just what happens within their life. We see that they endure persecution. Um, they're willing to. They rejoice when they suffer shame for the name. And then we can also acknowledge that through different turns of events, there are opportunities for us to make ourselves vulnerable and, and creating the potential for being shamed or being dishonored. But to make this hit even closer to home, I want to point something out. You know, the evil one, the, one of the primary tactics that he uses against the people of God is to bring accusations. That is the very thing that he is doing through the high priest and, as the verbiage um, out of earlier out of chapter 4, the high priest and all those who were with him, they came to bring an accusation against God's people. In fact, um, I would say that that tactic is seen all throughout scripture and that the evil one is at all times trying to accuse his people. Um, from Psalm 109 and verse 6, this is, I think, very interesting. This is how it reads, uh, at least in the ESV. Uh, Psalm 109, verse 6, this is, um, the psalmist is talking about his enemy, and he says, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. The word... The Hebrew word behind that's being translated into English here, let an accuser, is Satan. That is what the word means. Satan is an accuser. Job, I, you know, if you're familiar at all with Job, remember it, it unfolds in chapter 1. And what was Satan doing? He was, God said to him, where have you been? What are you doing? He says, oh, I've been roaming the earth. And so we can draw, we can infer from this based on the conversation that takes place about Job after that, is that he's looking for people to accuse. Like that is his, that's his goal is to accuse. Now in that particular setting, and the reason that we can draw that inference is because God says, have you considered my servant Job? Here's a guy for you to accuse. And of course that uh, takes its whole own course through the book of Job. But Satan is going and wandering the earth looking who it is that he can accuse. Also in Zechariah chapter 3, the first verse. It says... Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 says, so this is a vision that Zechariah is having, and he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
And then one more reference is in uh, Revelation chapter 12, where he is referred to, Satan is referred to as the accuser of our brothers. So when we see that the tactic that the evil one, that the adversary, that the accuser uses is at the time of the apostles to bring an accusation against them, we can also see that we are not actually quite so far away from the apostles as we might think. We're not performing signs and wonders, we're not going up before a court, but you can, you can bet your bottom dollar that the same tactic that the evil one used against the apostles is the tactic that he is using against you today. He is currently wanting to level accusations against you. He wants you to feel shame. He wants you to feel like you will be dishonored if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to others and therefore keep your mouth shut. And then, later, when you're ashamed of the fact that you didn't speak up, he'll accuse you of that too. That is the tactic. He's there to accuse. He accused the apostles, and he's accusing you today. But there's something that you need to remember, which is, he is the father of lies, and it is absolutely not the truth for all those that are Christ's children. In Romans 8, the first four verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is the model that the apostles were showing us then and that we absolutely can grab a hold of, absolutely one for one, because we too have been the recipients of the, uh, that the, of the fulfilled law, and we no longer have to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Turns out, we are very close to what <coughs> the apostles were experiencing. <coughs> and it, when we think about then, the idea of being worthy to suffer shame for the name, worthy to suffer dishonor for what it is for our identity, we can read Romans 8, 1 to 4, and remember that that is the truth of our identity. Those accusations have no grounds. They have no ability to attach. They have no fertile soil in us. We can choose not to believe the shame or to look at it the way that Christ did, we can look at it and, and scoff at the shame itself and instead run with endurance the life that God has presented before us. We run with endurance. We don't care about the shame. Who cares? It's like a mother being 
scoffed at because she shows love for a child. Does that make any sense whatsoever? What mother would care if somebody made fun of them because they demonstrated love for their own child? If anything, you would say, yeah, I love my child. There's, there's no shame in any of that. Now, on the opposite end, we always need to remember that in Matthew 10, 38, it does say, Matthew 10, 38, it does say, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so there it is. Your particular circumstance, by God's providence, he has given you the circumstance that you have. This is the cross, that the, the, the details of your situation are the cross that you have the opportunity to bear, which means it's going to put you into a position to make yourself vulnerable, to open yourself up to worldly shame, but really ultimately so that you can rejoice in that shame because that's not the reality of your identity. You too, just like the apostles, can rejoice in the name and can continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that there is such a direct connection between what took place with the apostles as they were as they were pressed on their faith. Thank you for their faithfulness, which really is only a reflection of your faithfulness. And Lord, each of us can say just as just as Esther's uncle said, maybe it's that you have been put into a position for just a time as this. And may we not hesitate to make ourselves vulnerable, to faithfully make, uh, proclaim the, the gospel of Christ, even if in this world it would elicit shame, that it might elicit dishonor. May instead we be able to rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Jesus' name. Amen.